Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on the website. This week... Author Peter Doggett joins Nate to talk about his book, CSNY, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. In this episode, Peter and Nate talk about the soft rock supergroup that tried to have it all, succeeded beyond their wildest dreams, and fell apart in an explosion of egos, money, and cocaine. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and Peter Doggett returns to us today to talk about his new book, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Peter, welcome back to the show. Hi, good to be here. Cool. And so this is an ambitious book about one of the most ambitious projects in rock history. I mean, these guys were all veterans of successful 60s pop groups. They'd all followed the Pied Piper Beatles down the the path of, hey, let's get some friends together and and have a group, man, and 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 that hadn't worked out for them. And they thought they could square the circle by creating a loose partnership that wouldn't bind them down. I want to I quote from your introduction that says, Scarred by their unhappy experiences from the bands which, from which they escaped, they vowed they would never become a group. Instead, they set out to prove it was possible for four irrepressibly creative willfully egotistical individuals to combine their talents without sacrificing their personal identities, but they hadn't allowed for the impact of artistic and commercial success. Tell us about that. <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling that line completely nails the whole story. Oh, I don't, <laughs> don't need to say any more. Um, okay, we're, go, we're going back to the, to, to the beginning. You've got four guys. Well, originally three. No, originally two. Um, we're talking about David Crosby and Stephen Stills. They they were going to form a duo in 1968 when David Crosby had been kicked out of the birds and Stephen Stills had watched the Buffalo Springfield collapse around him. And so they were searching for a third guy maybe to, 
to, to, to put a project together and they approached one or two people and then it, it seemed to make sense for them to sing with Graham Nash who was a friend of Crosby's all three of them uh, were, were friends with Mama Cass Elliot. She was the sort of connection who brought them all together. And on, on a famous day at Joni Mitchell's house, almost certainly on the last day of August 1968, Crosby, Stills and Nash sang together properly for the first time and blew each other's minds. And then they proceeded to go around Laurel Canyon and other rock and roll haunts in Los Angeles and blow everybody else's mind. And so it was obvious that at least in the short term, they had to be a group. And I want to get the context this was taking place. And this is the late sixties in Los Angeles at the heart of the record industry. The society has seen these immense changes since just 1964 when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, these guys had all had leading roles with this and the hubris um, is pretty overwhelming. I mean, you've got a quote in here from Neil Young. I think it's in 1970. It's like, everybody knows the revolution's coming. It's just a matter of when. They really think that they're in the, that they're in the avant-garde of a project that is going to change our whole culture and save the world. Absolutely. Um, although the, the irony is that really before Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young came together as a touring band, they, they, they weren't on an individual basis particularly inspired by politics. Now, OK, Stephen Stills had, had written the Buffalo Springfield song, for what it's worth, about the Sunset Strip riots in 66. But otherwise, these weren't guys who were on the front line of campaigns against President Nixon or against the Vietnam War. But they were on the cutting edge of, of culture in another way, which is that in, in 1967, all four of them had tried to push the boundaries of popular music in the same way as the Beatles were doing with Sgt. Pepper. And all four of them had met public, well, apathy or disapproval. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, about, first of all, Crosby with the Birds, who did this amazing single called Lady Friend in 67, which was one of the worst-selling singles of their career. Graham Nash masterminded the Holly song King Midas in reverse, that by their standards was a flop. Stephen Stills put together Bluebird and Rock and Roll Women, two incredibly progressive pop singles that, that didn't sell as well as their previous hit had done. And meanwhile, Neil Young, who was sort of on the periphery of this, um, was writing songs like Expecting to Fly, which um, were, were also way, way too far out for the, for the mainstream pop audience. So all four of them were just starting to lose touch with the main pop audience, at least, and needed to find a new way of connecting with the, the people around them. And they didn't think of this in a, as a commercial endeavor but it was primarily an artistic endeavor. I mean, that's one thing that you get across. Like you mentioned uh, in the book that, you know, this the Crosby, Stills and Nash in particular were critical pariahs throughout the eighties. And, and I'm a Gen Xer. So that's the environment I grew up in. My, my boomer older brothers, you know, my brother graduated in 72. He had all their albums. My brother who graduated in 78, he had Neil Young, but none of the other guys. And by my time, you know, Crosby and Stills in particular were these laughing stocks, you know, these symbols of hippie excess and, and hubris and and self-ownage, what we would call today. You know, th th these are guys who had repeatedly humiliated themselves in public. But 
it's pretty clear they didn't start out from a place of bad intent. They just wanted to make music and have an audience. Well, well, that's right. And the, the, the unfortunate side effects of wanting to make music and then doing it extremely well. And, and what's more, with, with, with Crosby, Stills and Nash creating a sound that didn't sound like anybody else and, and took first America and then the rest of the world by storm. Now, the side effect of that is that you become incredibly famous. And the side effect of that is that you get the opportunity to buy lots of very expensive drugs and to have your ego massaged in every way imaginable and um, to to start to fall out with everybody around you, including the guys who are supposed to be your 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 buddies, your you know, your artistic partners, your brothers in arms. Um, so as soon as they started to experience wild success in '69 and '70, they all they all four of them became almost intolerable to be around, which meant it was very hard for them to stay in the same band together. And and then one other piece of context I want to get in front of the audience is that they transitioned out of the birds and the hollies and the buffalo springfield and into crosby stills nash and young just as the the record industry uh and the generation shifted from 45 singles to long playing albums from am radio to fm freeform radio and from theaters to arenas and stadiums and the amounts of money multiplied by 10 or 100 compared to what they had made just a few years previously still at the top of the pop game yeah well i was going to say that's a really good point and in a way csn csny were just about the the leaders of that sort of shift of emphasis away from singles to albums as you said from from sort of small theaters to arenas they arrived at the exact perfect moment for that and they it's no coincidence that they were on atlantic records and managed by a young david geffen and you know atlantic around the same time launches led zeppelin and as much as people see crosby stills and nash and led zeppelin as these polar opposites they had an enormous amount in common and both groups were trying to square the circle again of mixing acoustic music and intimate personal sounds with heavy rock and they were both usually influenced by Joni Mitchell yeah which is weird when you look back because I remember at the time that if you like Zeppelin you wouldn't like CSMY I mean these were polar opposites one was hard rock and one was the the singer-songwriter tradition you know poetry in a way but if, if you listen to them now it's so obvious they're coming out of the same musical loves and in the case of Joni Mitchell yes the same musical passion but the twist with Crosby Stills and, and Nash is they weren't just listening to Joni Mitchell records. Two out of the three of them had serious love affairs with her. Um, at least two, yes. Um, as, as far as we know, she never had any involvement with with Stephen Stills. And Neil Young, who knows? They, they had been friends for a long time before she met either uh, Crosby and, or Nash. But the amazing thing in, in uh, 68 was that at the start of 1968, she was going out with, um, she you know, she was involved in a, in a relationship with David Crosby, who was producing her first album. By the end of 68, she, she, she was living in Laurel Canyon with Graham Nash. And in between, Crosby and Nash formed a band together, which, I mean, is, uh, you know, just, just shows how broad-minded they were, to say the very least. Yeah, and it's it's typical of the ethos of that time. I mean, this was very much the we can have it all generation. We can we can have deep, intimate, 
relationships with women as equals, which is something they talked about. Meanwhile, we can be as promiscuous as possible and treat women like complete servants, like David Crosby's main partner, Christine Hinton, who you know tragically dies in '69, triggering his spiral into into drug addiction. But you know, this is one of the things that, as a younger person growing up who had seen friends, families torn apart by divorce and the excesses of the boomer generation, somebody like David Crosby, who would get on stage and talk about sweet, succulent 15-year-olds, you know, literally still to this day makes me viscerally angry. Um, But uh, reading this book and listening to this music, I mean, I've really enjoyed going back and listening to their solo albums and all these things that I've, you know, basically ignored my whole life. And there's a lot of really good music and they're flawed, but they're not horrible. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I would like to have been in a relationship with any of them. Thank you very much. Or maybe even in a band with any of them. But each of those four guys in CSMY came to the music from the best possible intentions. I mean, they, those intentions may have become perverted along the way. But um, they started out they the, because they were passionate about music. They wanted to tell the truth in their songs. They wanted to connect with the mass audience. Um, they wanted to share the love they felt for each other in each other's music with the rest of the world. Um, it's just a shame that they weren't able to do that without fighting with each other. But they did produce a lot of great music and impact people's lives. And the first song I want to play, I think it's one of the best examples of not only the original harmony blend of Crosby, Stills and Nash, but also of their interconnectedness with the bigger California scene. This is a song Steve Stills wrote with members of Jefferson Airplane, Wooden Ships, that was also recorded by Jefferson Airplane on their album. But here's the Crosby, Stills and Nash version. And that was Wooden Ships, a collaboration between Stephen Stills uh, and Paul Kantner and other members of Jefferson Airplane, but here performed by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Talk a little bit about that and, and the kind of alchemy uh, that they were able to create from these loose coalitions of creative partners. Well, the, the important person you missed from, from that list of collaborators was, in fact, David Crosby. And it was Crosby and Kantner who originally came up with that song when they were hanging out on Crosby's boat. I mean, throughout the, the, this this sort of first CSN, CSMY period, Crosby's boat is like a symbol of everything <laughs> that surrounds them. It's, a, it's a, an escape from the rest of the world where they could um, do whatever they wanted with whoever they wanted, not wear any clothes, um, take enormous quantities of drugs, and be incredibly creative. And not surprisingly, when, when they were on a, a wooden ship, they wrote a song called Wooden Ships. But it, the, 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 the fantasy of the song also had a, a very sort of dark tinge to it, reflecting the political paranoia of the times. And in, in fact, it was Stephen Stills who, who, who uh, contributed the most paranoid verse of that song. And, and there's a point in here you quote somebody, I think it might be Alan Clark, uh, Graham Nash's partner from the Hollies. I could be wildly off about that. But that... They they had these utopian visions and this sort of idea 
they're living this very pampered hippie lifestyle where they've got the personal freedom to explore new lifestyles and change their personal world. But they haven't really done the work to try to affect political change on the bigger scale. And when the forces of reaction start impacting their world, they react. That's the genesis of these political songs like Wooden Ships and, and, and the others was that a battle that they could ever have hoped to win? Or, I mean, do you, do you see this as foolhardiness or naivete or inspired idealism? Um, all of those, I think, at the same time. Um, in, in, in political terms, I think once they, they got in front of an audience and realized that almost by accident they, they had become standard bearers for the counterculture, for the hippie movement, I mean, with CSMY, you've got four guys who are obviously following the same ideals, basically, but in four very different ways, four very different people. They look different. They sounded different in front of an audience. And if you were in the crowd at an early CSMY show, you could look up. And one of those four guys, if you were a man, I guess, would would you think, well, I'm like him. You know, I'm not like maybe maybe I'm not like Crosby, but I'm like Stills or whatever. Um, and once they realized they, that they had that rapport, that relationship with their audience, they started to write songs that were not just reflecting the concerns of their audience, but they were actually pushing the audience along um, and, and getting them involved in, in campaigns that perhaps the audience might not have reached uh, as quickly by themselves. And you talk about the uh, the one thing I really enjoyed about the book was you you get across the creative dynamics that are going on. And these are th these are three and then later four totally alpha musicians. All of these guys are immensely talented, incredibly egotistical. They're visionaries. They all have a vision of what they want. They all had dominated or attempted to dominate their previous band. And yet within that original trio, you know, all animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Stephen Stills has an outsized role in the original album and the original trio. Absolutely, and and that outsized role was 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 reflected both in in the the credits for songwriting, because he was so much more prolific than the other guys, but also in the in the musician credits, because whereas. Graham Nash was only a passable guitarist and couldn't really play piano at all. And David Crosby was a very good guitarist and couldn't really play piano at all. Stills was, was I think still is, a musical genius who could play any kind of keyboard instrument, any kind of stringed instrument, and was also a very talented drummer as well. And so, um, not surprisingly, he came to dominate the sessions for the first album. And he also produced most of the songs that connected most easily with most of the audience. So that's fine when they're a trio and, and Crosby and Nash are happy to sort of sit back, provide harmonies and um, let Stills lead. Now, when you bring Stephen Stills' old friend and sparring partner from the Buffalo Springfield into the mix, Neil Young, suddenly, well, Neil doesn't want to, to play second fiddle to Stephen because he's done that in the Springfield and it didn't work. And so at the same time, Crosby and Nash are lapping up the adulation from their audience. And so they think they're thinking, well, we're, you know, we're just as important as Stills. And meanwhile, Stills is happily going along thinking, this is my band. And so that is, is a recipe for chaos, because when it comes to the sessions for Deja Vu in late 69, um, poor old Stephen Stills turns up still thinking he's the guy. And meanwhile, the other three are thinking, no, no. 
it's a partnership of equals or maybe secretly I'm the guy and um, as they discovered it's very hard to make a record like that and why did Stills make that decision and was it his decision to make well in um, I, I think it just happened because he he was so energetic so inspired in that late in that late 60s period I mean um, the this, this also applies to Crosby in a way, but if you look at Stephen Stills' catalogue, he wrote absolute, absolutely dozens of the best songs of his career between 1967 and 1970 or 71. So much creativity crowned into such a, a short space. He was a, an unstoppable force at that point, so he had to be the guy who was going to be in charge. Um, and and he was still just as creative in late '69, early '70 when when he's recording with CSMY. But what's happened in, in, is that Crosby and Nash start to bond more with Neil Young, and they start to fall out more with Stephen Stills. And the Stills Young relationship is always a bit iffy anyway, and so recipe for disaster. Yeah, you paint a very vivid picture of Stephen Stills. Alienated, alienating each of his partners one by one to the point where he goes from being leader of the band and center of the band to being completely the odd man out. And I think that it's, again, the fundamental sin of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young was this, we can have it all, we can do it all, we can be a loose aggregation of people that come together and, and break apart, and we can be an acoustic trio and a heavy rock group. It was Stills' need to perform live with a band and with an equal, somebody who was not only as equal as a singer-songwriter and a harmony singer like Crosby and Nash were, but somebody who was as equal as a musician and a guitar player like Neil Young was. And, you know, that was too much weight to carry. It was interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, they had approached Steve Winwood or maybe not approached, but, but Steve Stills wanted to approach Steve Winwood, but Winwood got the impression that he didn't want to play with him. And, and you, you tell of a, important business meeting where Amit Erdogan and David Geffen and Elliot Rogers, who are the trio's management, decide that they want Neil Young in the band. And you paint a story that it's Amit Erdogan planting the idea in the other people's heads. Well, that's what Amit told me many years ago when I spoke to him, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem, as I talk about later in the book, and maybe we'll talk about this later, is that every, everybody tends to enlarge their own role in the proceedings as, you know, time time goes along. But uh, but uh, certainly in 69, Amit Ertigan was was the guy who, certainly Stephen Stills, certainly David Crosby, and I think Graham Nash as well, were, were going to listen to and to take seriously. He was the one who signed them to Atlantic. He had this great R&B heritage behind him. Um, and um, if he came up with a suggestion, you should work with Neil Young, then th they were almost certainly going to say yes. And this context, it becomes very clear the kind of pressure that they were under because this was so much money. Not only was their first album an enormous hit, but there was immediately offers to play not just theaters or arenas, but you know they could have come out and played a two hundred thousand played to two hundred thousand people at their first gig. And as it was, you know they played the Chicago Auditorium as as a warm up. But then here comes Woodstock. 
Yeah, which if if you're ever lucky enough to meet David Crosby, I have a word of advice for you. Don't mention Woodstock because it's the one thing that he hates talking about more than anything else because I think he's been asked about it every single day of his life over the last 50 years. But it it, it became... Um, well, first of all, the band became an icon, icon of Woodstock and Woodstock became this enormous... Um, What's the word? Monolith, edifice, skyscraper that towered over the rest of their career um, and seems seems to get bigger in their career the further away we get from it. At the time, they played the festival, they were in the film, they recorded the Joni Mitchell song about Woodstock, it was a hit single in America, it was in the movie, um, and so they came to seem... Um, absolutely tied in to the, to the festival, which also meant that when the festival and that whole ethos fell out of favour in the early 70s, so did CSNY. They, they were seen as, as part of the same stale hippie dream. And yet Neil Young cleverly avoided the whole thing by refusing to allow himself to be filmed for the movie. Well, he he did, yes. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sceptical about this the, the story that he's pushed most of the time over the last 50 years about how he put his foot down and and said, I will not be filmed, because he was filmed for some of the show. Um, film does exist of him, it just wasn't in the movie. But it's true that, that he did, either would not or did not sign the release on the day of the festival to allow the film to be used. And subsequently he made it known through his manager, management that he didn't want to be in the movie. And then, of course, I don't know, 10, 20 years later, he turns around and goes, gee, I wonder why I wasn't in the movie. Maybe they didn't like me. Well, you asked not to be in the movie. You can't do that. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure whether it was a brilliant a brilliant um, plan on his part or whether it was just accidental or whether he was shy or uncomfortable that day, whatever it was. But it worked out well for him in career terms, weirdly, because he was able to, to, to live off this reputation of being the guy who was even cooler than Woodstock. And and let's let's turn to our next song, which is which is uh, from David Crosby's first solo album. If I could only remember my name, the song is Cowboy Movie. David Crosby's Cowboy Movie. And that's David Crosby uh, singing Cowboy Movie from his first solo album. And this is, to me, I picked this song because it's just, it's it's a self-reflexive song wherein Crosby's telling this narrative about the band dynamics as a sort of cowboy movie parable. And if you know the details, it becomes even more hilarious because this is about a love triangle between Steve Stills, Graham Nash, and Rita Coolidge. So this is just celebrity excess and then Crosby flips out, thinking that she's an undercover cop. Yeah. Well, yes, one of his friends actually actually said that um, 
he became so paranoid in the early 70s that he started to think that maybe Rita Coolidge was an agent of the Nixon government who had been put there to cut down CSNY's power as a political force, which, you know, is, I have to say, cocaine madness taken to extremes. Um, but yes, it's, it's a powerful little parable. He still performs it to this day. Um, he claims to be to be friends <laughs> friends with Rita Coolidge these days as well. But but certainly at the time he was very suspicious of the fact that she she seemed to have driven a wedge between Stills and Nash. But it wasn't Rita Coolidge who did that. It was the way that Stephen Stills, in effect, took her away from Graham Nash, and then Graham Nash took her back. Each man thinking that she was their possession, of course. And that's something you know. And this song sort of hits almost all of the things I didn't like about David Crosby. And it's a great song. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And, and you know, this was an album that was written off by the critics. I mean, they, the critics viciously turned on Crosby, Stills & Nash very early. They loved the first album. But by the time of the second album, you know, you've got Rolling Stone making jokes like, you know, here's three guys. Who are the only three people in the world that think, let's get heavy, man. And then they, let's do a Joni Mitchell song, you know. So they're, they're getting these kicks in the nuts from everybody, but this song in particular, you've got sexism and racism in there. I mean, he talks about her as an Indian, and and there's so many cringy moments. You know, they have an African American bass player, Greg Reeves. They almost got Rick James in the band, maybe, or he was their introduction to uh, Greg Reeves. And you know, Rick James and Neil Young had been in a band in the '60s on Motown called the Minor Birds for a quick minute, but. You've got these incidents you you describe of you know Graham Nash referring to Stills as the the real spade in the group, and you wonder what the look on Greg Reeves's face was. And you tell the story of Steve Stills recording a song called "White Inward" with with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, these are guys who mean well, but can't help expressing the racism of the generation in these just embarrassing ways. And then the sexism is almost bottomless, and it's kind of fascinating to me how you describe, you know, Graham Nash and David Crosby ha have these intense relationship with Joni Mitchell, where they're not just lovers, but they're also artistic patrons of her work and, and promote her. And she writes songs for the band. And, and yet she has almost nothing but negative things to say about him these days. And uh, uh, Certainly David Crosby. Yes. Not, not so much Graham Nash, although yes, in the, in, in one of the last interviews she did before she was taken ill a few years ago, she she had turned on Nash as well at that point. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can't I can't disagree with anything you said. But all I would say is that for all their sexism and even for the sort of vague hints of racism, they, these four guys were still more right on in the parlance of the times than almost everybody else around them. So. It, the, the the way they talk about women and about people from other races seems crass or worse now, but compared to, to the way everybody else was talking about women and, uh, well, other men were talking about women and everybody was talking about people from other races, well, they, they were fantastically progressive for their time. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, when we bash on on baby boomers that these were some of the first people who stood up and said hey let's try to do this better and and the fact that they openly integrated their band and had greg reeves in the band and pushed him forward uh not quite as equal member but he had his first name on the on the cover of the second album i mean greg reeves and dallas taylor became very famous to music fans of that genera generation just because of that and so yeah i think it's important to strike that balance and and to keep in mind that they were sort of pioneers.
But now I want to turn a little bit and talk about some of the jujitsu of Neil Young again and how he managed to go from somebody who was having a flop as a solo performer. His first two albums do nothing. The first singles do nothing. He opens for Joni Mitchell on a tiny club tour and doesn't even get mentioned in the reviews at the same time as, uh, you know, his friends are, are picking over stadium dates and which festivals to headline. And yet in a very short period of time, he is singing the headlining encore of their biggest shows. You, you've got a great um, description of Neil Young uh, suddenly seizing the show like a gladiator lifting his victim's head with the epic finale of Down by the River. I mean, the, 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 the net effect of his refusing to act as a backup singer or sing harmony and then coming in for the big rock anthem at the end, such a critical part of Neil Young taking over. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, as, as you say, it, it is fascinating to, to remind yourself how insignificant a commercial figure Neil Young was when he got together with Crosby, Stills and Nash. Basically, nobody knew who he was unless you, you've been a real hardcore Buffalo Springfield fan or you've been one of a handful of people who'd bought one of his first two solo records. So in the first instance, it's CSN or that, that makes Neil Young hugely famous. Um, and it's fascinating to think, well, if Neil hadn't got together with Crosby, Stills and Nash, would he have turned into a sort of cult guy like, I don't know, Randy Newman or something? Would he have even been that big? Or maybe he would have been a superstar anyway, or maybe he would have been forgotten. We just don't know. I mean, that get the, 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 the uh, liaison with CSN com completely blew up his career in a big way. I mean, he became huge. Um, but he also brought something to the band, some, something vis visceral, um, loud, aggressive, erotic, that maybe CSN could never have touched by themselves. Um, the, there was a huge physicality to his music and also a unique kind of sensitivity in his songwriting as well. And those two things, I, I guess you could say they, they transformed a three-dimensional band CSN into not just a four-dimensional but a five-dimensional band um, because with Neil Young on board they could do absolutely anything. Yeah and he's a very schizophrenic person and before we talk about the downfall I want to talk about one other sort of uh, con contextual aspect of this and I thought it was very interesting that the role of television in, in the launch of Crosby, Stills and Nash they do the Dick Cavett show immediately after Woodstock. They, they, Joni Mitchell couldn't go to Woodstock because she was doing the show. They do the show, fly back to New York and, and do Dick Cavett and essentially take over the show. And, it, you know, Dick Cavett at the time, it's hard for people to fathom today the power of broadcast television back then. But being on the Dick Cavett show meant almost everybody in America saw you or was aware of you. And yet within just a year, they're doing the Tom Jones show. And it's a complete disaster because Jones insists on on performing with them and overperforms. And after that, no more TV. Well, yes, it's not even a year. It's a matter of weeks, actually, between the Cavett show and the Tom Jones show. Now, I mean, I've got a lot of time for, for Tom Jones. I think he's a great singer. I don't think he's always used his voice in the best best circumstances but he had a network tv show he had the balls to say 
um, okay, I, I don't want to just just have guys like Bing Crosby on, which is what the network wanted. I want to have hip rock bands on. So he had Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears, and he had Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young very, very early in their career. Um, but it, it, it was one of the conditions of being on his show that you sang with him. And so they they did this version of Long Time Gone with with uh, t- from the first album with Tom Jones singing most of the lead vocals. And it has to be seen to be believed. You can find it on YouTube and it's well worth watching. It's hysterically funny. Um, and it's not really Tom Jones's fault. It's the complete mismatch between him and the band. And it's also the mismatch between him and Stephen Stills because when Tom Jones starts singing R&B type vocals, Stephen Stills goes, hell, I can do that better than you. And so they have a, a shout off, a scream off, basically, for the last two minutes of the song. It's hysterical. And and that, that tendency of Stephen Stills to get pulled into stupid confrontations is, is a theme that you draw up throughout uh, the story. And there's a story of uh, a heckler at one of their big festival performances that stills cannot resist actually physically attacking the guy and and david crosby's comments and this is another thing that just burned me as a gen x kid was this uh david crosby saying peace and love man peace and love kick his ass Stephen." and (laughs) and this hypocrisy of the the peace and love vibe but then the violence of steve stills personally you know it, it was a big part of destroying stills relationship with his bandmates but it also really hurt their image I, I, I guess so. I mean, you can see that confrontation in, in, in the movie Celebration at Big Sur, because this was the Big Sur Folk Festival. And the guy who was heckling was a local artist who was tired of seeing people from outside Big Sur coming in. And as far as he was concerned, commercializing what should have been this pure, beautiful festival in Big Sur. Um, and so he he basically spent the whole weekend heckling everybody who came on, and everybody else dealt with it in the in a quieter way. And for whatever reason, Stephen just um, responded, and they worked each other up to a frenzy. Now you, you you've quoted you quoted Crosby. He's being sarcastic. I mean he's he's laughing at the situation. He's laughing at Stills. He when he's when he's sort of saying, "Yeah, peace and love, kick his ass." He's 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 just amused by the whole situation. But at the same time, it was Crosby and Nash who managed to bring Stills back down and get him back out of the confrontation and back into the music. Yeah, and Stills' credits, you know, came out at that performance and was said, you know, sorry, I lost my head. Fortunately, some guys were around to love me back in. And and this again is something that's very forward for their time i mean you know these are the sons of the silent gi generation and and coming out of an incredibly macho culture and willing to hug and cry and and love each other and express their vulnerability but nonetheless it was easy to throw rocks at them because the excess just blew up so fast i want to cue up our next song which is graham nash's sleep song from his first solo album I was kissing your forehead You gave a frown So I kissed you again You started waking And put your arms round my waist Just making sure I was there 
And that was Graham Nash's tender ballad Sleep Song, which is basically a song about Joni Mitchell leaving him. Um, well, if it's the first Sleep Song of his first solo album, that's actually about his breakup with his first wife, Rosemary. Ah, not um, bad. But he was inspired to, to uh, record it two or three years after after he wrote it by, yes, his breakup with Joni Mitchell, which inspired several of his best songs. Um, I Used to Be a King is another one that is very much of, of that breaking up with, with Joni Mitchell moment. And, of course, the song he sang in front of it just after they'd split up, which was called Simple Man. Just want to hold you, don't want to hold you down. I mean, you couldn't be more open than that. Yeah, and there's something, you know, it's very poignant to listen to, to Nash's first song and also uh, Crosby's solo album because Crosby lost his partner, Christine Hinton, in a tragic car accident. And despite the fact that he had been basically a complete pig who treated her like a slave, he was devastated and driven into hard drugs. I mean, you know, there's a transition already between they move from pot and acid into cocaine, like you mentioned, when the success comes in. But with Crosby, especially after Hinton's death, numbs himself with heroin and, and essentially takes himself out of the running. And then, you know, poor Graham Nash is, is alienated from Steve Stills, who's punched him uh, and, you know, left behind by Neil Young, who's off doing his own thing and, and, and hit with this immense backlash by the critics and... Not so much the fans, but well, to some extent. I mean, the, the seventy-one is sort of the the critical tipping point when Crosby, Stills, and Nash become less hip, and Neil Young becomes increasingly cooler and cooler. Yep, and and what I find fascinating is that you can trace every single inch of that journey for those four guys in their songs. They didn't leave anything out. Every argument they had with each with each other with themselves, every bit of self-doubt, every new love affair, every, every collapse of a love affair, every time there was a song. And you really could completely tell their story just just through hearing the music without um, any sort of, uh, what's the word, Contextual, contextualization. I mean, they, they completely strip themselves bare in their songs. And there, and this is all in the context of a music business that's very greedy for more product and more appearances. And you vividly paint the story of how their 1970 and 1974 tours tear the band apart. First, the 1970 tour, I mean, almost immediately they fire Greg Reeves and then Dallas Taylor is forced out. And then, you know, the whole thing falls apart. They do their solo albums, which is part of their plan, you know, and Atlantic is just as happy as can be because now they've got four records to sell and and they're all quite commercially successful. Initially, uh, Stephen Stills has a big hit, uh, you know, with uh, Love the One You're With, another notorious hippie sexist anthem. And then in 74, they're talked into coming back together and they make the mistake of not recording an album first. And you've got this great troika of quotes from david crosby from 1974 talking you know in just three quotes over a three-month period he he talks about you know the limitless possibilities and how much fun they're having and by the end you know this isn't it's it's all over within a very incredibly short period of time that 74 tour which has gone down in rock history as um a, a chronicle of complete excess and mayhem it's it's fascinating to me because 
when they started out on the tour, individually, each of their careers was starting to sag, even Neil Young, or in fact, most most especially Neil Young. He was the one who was suffering most with the critics and with the public. Um, but as as with the Beatles during the same period, the, the, the uh, lure, lure of getting the original guys back together is more important than what's actually happening in their solo careers. So there's huge attention paid to to the CSMY tour. I mean, it, it, at a time when rock music wasn't on, on on the evening news, you it would be covered on the local TV bulletins every night because it was just causing such a, a stir each show. And they performed for three, sometimes four hours at each concert. Um, everybody leaves ecstatic. And yet... And uh, while they're on stage, they all seem to be getting on fantastically well. And yet, by the time they get to the end of that 74 tour, effectively, they're not speaking to each other. And it's hard to see quite what happens. I don't think Stills, Crosby and Nash, <coughs> excuse me, ever, ever quite worked out what had gone wrong. And because what had actually happened had happened in Neil Young's head. As the tour went on, he saw his career being revitalized and then thought, okay, now I don't need to be with these guys anymore. I can pursue my own vision again, like I have been doing for the last three years. And what I'm doing is more interesting, and he was probably right, than what the four of us can do together. But meanwhile, Crosby, Stills and Nash are still thinking, CSNY is what it's all about. It's the most important thing. Well, not for Neil Young. And, and there's two aspects of their live performance career that you get across you know, one is the bigness and and the individualism there, but the other thing is the difficulty they had pulling their act off. That that their harmonies were incredible from the beginning, and yet that was the first thing to go because Graham Nash literally couldn't hear himself singing. As soon as they added the rock band, and they didn't have the monitor technology that we have today. They're, suddenly they're singing out of key, and and if you if you're trying to do airtight, perfect, complicated harmonies like that, and somebody goes out of key, it becomes a cacophony, you know. And and Neil Young in particular struggles with his guitar tunings, and so they have this recurring experience on the '74 tour of doing a show, thinking it's great, coming back the next day to hear the tapes, and it's terrible, and and so there's this aspect of the quality of the music actually collapses right in front of their eyes. And then it happens in this context of they, as you say, they're not the biggest band in the world at the time, like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones probably could have done bigger tours, but they're the best paid band in the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. I mean, to, just in terms of the, the singing in tune, they, they were notorious in the seventies for how badly they, they sang together in public, which is ironic for a band who, you know, who are renowned for their tight harmonies. And yet when they get back together and Crosby is cleaned up in the, from the eighties onwards, at least until still Stephen Stills voice suffers really badly in the last 10 years or so. Um, when you hear Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young occasionally sing together, they sound fantastic. They can sing in tune when they can hear what they're doing. Um, but the trouble was in, in, in 69, 70, 74, they just hadn't got the stage equipment to be able to hear what they were doing. And also there's this conflict between Stephen Still's perfectionism and his one of the things that destroyed his career is the combination of cocaine and perfectionism and spending days and weeks in the studio recording the same things over and over again 
and and reaching a point of basically creative bankruptcy. You know, like the first Manassas album is seen as this uh, incredible accomplishment. Uh, some people compare it to the White Album, but the second Manassas album is a complete failure. Even Stephen Stills is embarrassed by. Whereas Neil Young is willing to embrace, you know, he's the guy who had the most trouble singing, the guy who originally in Buffalo Springfield, they didn't want to let sing his own songs because they thought his voice was too whiny and off kilter and who frequently played off key or frequently played bum notes as a guitar player. But he would embrace that and and go with the funk and manage to pull it off to a mass audience. Yeah, and the taste um, among, the, among the mass rock audience <clears throat> well, okay. I'll actually, ask, I, I won't say that. The taste among rock critics very much veered in the Neil Young direction, which which is that chaos and noise is better than perfectionism. Now, for the audience, the audience actually quite likes perfectionism, which is why they bought so many copies of Rumours, for example, in 1977, and not many copies in America of the first Clash album or the Sex Pistols album. People wanted to hear the Eagles. They wanted to hear Fleetwood Mac. So perfectionism was good. But as far as the critics were concerned, um, Neil Young taking chances, going completely out on a limb, um, re- really putting his career on the line with almost every record, that was always going to win kudos at a time when Stephen Stills was seen as being too too self-controlled, too tight, too interested in production, and maybe not interested enough in soul. And yet is also prone to embarrassing himself by trying to overdo the blues soul man thing. That was another thing, you know, like his versions of black queen. Sometimes when they went wrong, they went embarrassingly cringy wrong. And, um, I want to play Neil Young's thrasher from his rust never sleeps album, which is a classic example of a self-reflexive CSNY song telling the story, but he's telling the story of guys he's left behind. But the light of day was on them They could see the thrashers coming And the water shone like diamonds in the dew And that was Neil Young's Thrasher, which, uh, coming on the heels of the Stills Young tour that he had abandoned mid-tour by saying, you know, just leaving Stephen Stills a note saying, you know, sometimes things that start spontaneously end that way, eat a peach. Explain this just ability to be completely ice cold and yet win over the crowd on Neil Young's part. In, in, in terms of his attitude towards his comrades, he will always say, well, I'm sorry, it's just the way I am. And I guess we all know people like that who drive us crazy and turn around and say, well, sorry, that's just me. And if you're as talented as Neil Young, you can get away with it. But the, 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 the bizarre thing I, I, I chronicle in the book is, is that Crosby, Stills and Nash completely buy into this idea that Neil Young is endlessly more talented than they are by the late 70s and, and thereafter. And so they, they end up in, in the position of supplicants, desperately begging Neil Young the whole time to come back and work with them. Um, I, I, I report in the book an interview with Graham Nash, I think from the early 80s, where he basically sounds like a like a, 
a teenage kid who's just been dumped by their first partner and is you know, just hoping that they'll come back and maybe Neil will, will play with us, but maybe he doesn't even like our music. I just don't know. And if only he'd tell us. I mean, it's so embarrassing. I mean, you, 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 here's a guy who's written so many hit singles, had so much success, and yet for whatever psychological reason, he and Crosby and Stills have completely played down their own power and allowed Neil Young to walk all over them. And you and you sum it up at the end of the book by asking, you know, how could people create something so magical? And then meaning Crosby, Stills and Nash in their first album, and then immediately change it into something else, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And somehow they did it in such a way that CSN would always be seen thereafter as a lesser thing than CSNY. Completely. And um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of CSN. I've been to see them as a trio well, while they were still together anyway. I don't know, 30, 40 times as a trio. Now, because they never play in it, never played in England or one, two shows, I've only ever seen CSNY once. Um, and there is magic when CSN are together when they're speaking to each other. And there is even more magic when CSNY are together. So, I mean, I, I can see how that happens because the four is bigger than the three. Um, but, yes, you, you do have to wonder if in 1969 um, Crosby, Stills & Nash had recruited somebody who was a great musician but not a songwriter or a singer, then it would have been Crosby, Stills & Nash plus these other guys and maybe they would have survived a bit longer together. Um, but maybe they wouldn't have, have, have captured the era in the same way that CSMY did. It's, you know, it's one, one of those, um, what's the word, counterfactual histories that, you know, if JFK had lived and would the Vietnam War have ended or would it have got worse, all these kind of things. We don't know. But um, it was certainly the most fateful career move they ever made was 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 to was to bring Neil Young on board and maybe if they hadn't done that well certainly their whole lives would have been different and in the end I think and, and I want to thank you for helping me sort of make peace with with uh this group Crosby Stills Nash and Young as well as my boomer older brothers and parents of my friends who you know there's all this bitterness but but I think ultimately we can be thankful for them making so much good music as they did and, and having the social impact they did and also functioning as a cautionary tale. I mean, not only was it monitors that messed up their singing, it was also the endless use of cocaine. And and this, it's not their fault that they came along at a time when floods of money and drugs and sexual power were being thrown at people who are musically talented and cultural power. And they had no way to be prepared for any of those things, much less all of them. No, no that, that's entirely right. And you have to remember that in the late 60s, at least, I don't think anybody realized cocaine was addictive. I mean, maybe if they watched CSMY for a while at close quarters, they would have realized. But um, I, I don't think anybody, certainly in the band, they didn't think they were doing themselves any harm. It was only later they started to think, oh, maybe I've just lost a bit of, it, of the edge of my voice. But at the same time, God, I love this drug. OK, let's do some more of it. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called you, you Never Give Me Your Money about the breakup of the Beatles and what happened afterwards. And in a way, writing this book on CSNY and having 
spent quite a bit of time with Crosby, Stills and Nash down the years and with lots of their friends and associates as well. It, it, it's, it felt a bit like deja vu, to use a phrase, um, because here you have four guys who've got the world at their feet and they just can't bring it off. They can't manage to stay together. They reach a point when their relationships outgrow each other. And in, in my book about the Beatles, I ended up actually feeling sorry for Paul McCartney because he gets the blame unfairly, I think, for breaking the band up or being the person who drove them apart when all he was trying to do was keep the band together. And I feel I ended up feeling the same way this time about Stephen Stills because I think... Um, he was insufferable to be around. He did have these huge ego problems. He was a maniac, I think, at the, at, at the time CSMY were at their peak. But he was a well-intentioned maniac and a brilliant maniac as well. And it's such a tragedy for both bands that they couldn't find a way to, to overlook each other's flaws, instead of which, as soon as they noticed each other's flaws, all they could do was notice them now, even more from one day to the next. And um, once that starts in any relationship, then suddenly the flaws become the important thing and what brought you together gets forgotten. It's a tragedy. And I'm so glad you brought up um, You Never Give Me Your Money because that was the first one of your books I read and really enjoyed it. And I really want to have you back on the show to talk about that. I would love to come. Thank you. Cool. Well, we'll book that. And that was Peter Doggett, author of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And this is Let It Roll. Thanks for listening. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus, and next Monday when legendary author Stanley Booth joins Nate to talk Memphis music from Furry Lewis to Dewey Phillips to Elvis Presley himself. CSNY Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is published by Atria Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our site, letitrollpodcast.com. <laughs>